to invite our panelists to make their way up here. And as they're making their way up, I'll give a brief word of introduction. These are all colleagues here at Midwestern Seminary, so individuals that you know, at least distantly, and many of them you know personally. And as they find their seats, I'll, I'll work across the stage here. Uh, the very far end is Mrs. Angela Swain. Uh, she serves our music department and so capably and, and admirably serves alongside her husband, Dr. Matthew Swain, our second member of our panel, overseeing our Department of Worship, Ministries, and Music. To his left is Dr. Thomas Gitt, serves as Research Professor of Church History here. And of course, Dr. Michael McMullen, who serves as Professor of Church History here. And then Dr. John Mark Yates, who serves as kind of everything here. And so uh, wearing many hats, but as a trained church historian, but also serves as Vice President, Dean of Students here as well. So guys, we're here today to talk about John Newton and about this hymn, Amazing Grace. And it's not coincidental or accidental that we're having this conversation in early 2023, because something happened 250 years ago. A hymn was produced, uh, first sung in a little church in Old England, and uh, a hymn that, that proved and has proven the test of time. I was thinking even in recent days about this, that it's very hard to get to any public event of mourning, whether it be a Christian funeral service or the funeral of a president of the United States or some other figure in the Western world, that this hymn doesn't show up. And we're going to get into the story and the hymn itself theologically, but on the front end, I, I guess... What about this hymn has proven to have such staying power? Why is it such a part of our culture, of our national consciousness? Uh, why does it show up in all these different places, even from people who are committed evangelicals to those who are marginally affiliated or not affiliated at all with Christianity in America? Give us a sense of, of this hymn in historical perspective. Who wants to go first? Everybody was going to point to me. Um, that's going to be the, the theme of the morning. Uh, to give a little bit of perspective, John Newton was serving as pastor in Olney. Um, he penned Amazing Grace in December of 1772, uh, and it was intended to be written as as a, a support to a message that he was planning to preach based out of 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, which is a recounting of David uh, and building the ark and wanting to build um, the temple and having a, a place for the ark to be. Um, but suffice it to say, the, the, um, the hymn and the message were to be preached on, preached on January 1st of 1773, which it was, and that, that is why here now in 2023, we're celebrating the, um, the, the, uh, the anniversary of Amazing Grace. Um, interestingly, uh, and, and, and by the way, John Newton was a prolific hymn writer. So it's not just that John sat down and decided, I think I'll write a hymn for this particular Sunday uh, with my particular hymn in honor of uh, January 1st because it marks the new year. But this was something that he did quite regularly. In fact, John Newton says in his own diaries, he says, I oftentimes write a hymn uh, weekly. In some of his, the, the peak of his hymn writing period, he wrote a hymn weekly to go with his message. And he said, and I labor as hard, if not more so, on the writing of my on the writing of my hymns um, as a means to support the preached the preach word 
um, also to promote the faith and to encourage the believers there in Olney who were simple working class folks. So this was a means to help them understand the, the theology and the message of the morning. So you're, you're, you're not getting ahead of me, you're getting behind me. You're going way back where I want to go momentarily. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we do though, get, give us a sense from the panel, like, why is this hymn in this moment? Why is mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey singing this hymn yeah. with, with you know, the rest of America in moments of mourning? What is it about this hymn that is so iconic? It, it, it's, and I have a theory here, but, but I would love for some of you guys, especially Dr. Yates and Dr. Kidd, who are observers, and Dr. McMullen of the historical side of this, why is it that we're having this conversation in 2023? Not just because it's the 250th anniversary, but because this hymn has had such a staying power and has so arrested the national conscience for now over, for now deep into the 21st century. I, I would say that, uh, number one, it's singable, which means that uh, it's easily transmitted from generation to generation. So you, you get this wonderful movement from generation to generation. But I think lyrically as well, even a person who is far from Christ can understand grace. Uh, grace still shows up in popular music songs. Uh, it still shows up in concepts. And while they may not have the full theological understanding of that, the need and the desire of individuals to be pardoned and to experience some level of grace, I think is a common human aspect. And so when we take this singable nature and then it continues to be transmitted, and because it still shows up so often in popular culture, that just, again, reintroduces yet another generation and keeps pulling it through where we would still see it sung in major events like presidential funerals or uh, at... uh, 9-11 9-11 memorial services. 9-11 memorial services. It just, there's a common understanding uh, that uh, of not only lyrically, but I think even musically, there's just something that that evokes and it continues to evoke in every generation because it keeps being shared in almost every experience. And so that works that way. I think also it, it reflects the struggle that people feel that they're going through. Um, it, it reflects, you know, people's lives in so many different situations, so they can make it their own. And um, the fact that there's so much there of hope as well, so it becomes a hymn for the civil rights movement, for example. Um, it becomes Elvis Presley's, you know, favorite hymn, a hymn that's sung what ten million times a year. Um, it reflects where people are. They can, you know, they see it as something that genuinely reflects what their life is and, and the hope they can have, I think. Dr. Kidd. Yeah, I think it, it, it has a resonance to it that, that does echo across culture. I mean, if you think about the great works of literature, world literature, uh, there, there's no more common theme than you know, the falling away and then being redeemed, and that shows up in movies, there's probably you know three or four versions of that in the Star Wars movies. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just everywhere in in culture, and I, and I think that tells you the power of it tells you that that God has wired something into us, uh, you know, even in the natural sense of of that desire for redemption, um, and so it taps right into that. It, it also, I think, speaks to. What a powerful evangelical heritage that we have in America and, and, and also in, in Britain, but I think even more expansively in, in America that this would be sort of a national hymn for us, even though 
you know, today I think we're, if we're not already there, we're well on our way to being a post-Christian culture, but there's, there's echoes, there's resonances. Uh, and, and you all know how this works with music. If you ever got in trouble for listening to a secular song that had, you know, bad stuff in it, and you told your parents, well, I don't like it for the words, I like it for the music. Anybody testify here? So right. anyway, I, I mean, I think when people like Oprah sing it, they're just a wretch like me. They're not, they're not really engaging with what Newton meant by the words and what Newton experienced. So I think it, it works culturally at a level that, it, it, you know, it, 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 for Christians, it's much more specific, personal, and resonant. Right, and uh, and you guys touched thematically on on what I was hoping to get at as far as even the singability of it, the lyrics. I mean, the story of redemption and grace, and everyone has experienced that, uh, if not spiritually, at least in some way, socially, personally, or observed that. And and I think it's it's at a point to where it's kind of a, a self-sustaining or self-fulfilling or self-propelling him as well. Because think about where we are as a people, post-Christian, obviously multicultural. And, uh, you know, 100 years ago, the King James Version of the Bible, there was a lingua franca element to it where there was a common language there, and that's gone. But if you want to sing a song, a hymn, and some, whether it's interfaith gathering, multicultural gathering, whatever gathering, it's this, this kind of one lingering piece, this one lingering item, this one lingering song that, that people can sing and kind of sort of know the hymns, you know, everyone in the room, the, the lyrics, everyone in the room. So I want to go back now to, um, to, to, to the beginning, not just of the hymn, but to John Newton, uh, born in, in 1725, died in, uh, what, what, 1802, so lived, no, 1807, lived to be 82 years old, and uh, his, his father was not a believer, his mother was a believer, but she died at, what, the age of six, is that right, when he was very young, uh, and he's introduced to a life on the seas beginning at the age of 11. So give us a sense, Dr. McMullen, especially of, of just, you know, mid, early to mid life in 18th century Britain. What would it be like for an 11-year-old boy, a teenage boy, to have a life on the seas? I mean, it's a very difficult economic, social life that you have. The, the dangers, the chances of surviving anywhere through infant mortality, that's a difficult thing and the poverty that you will face, um, the dangers that Newton himself faced. Um, you know, you could be press ganged as a teenager, end up on a ship, be away for years. Uh, your father, he was fortunate, his father will take him for about five voyages as a teenager. So he's introduced to a life on the sea which will give him a trade and an income and that kind of thing. But it's a very difficult period to, to live through, uh, a little in the way of support from anything. His father is not the best father, and the loss of a very godly mother, he has a great start through her in memorizing scripture and hymns and things like that. And this. she has ambitions for him to be a minister. Yes. And um, of course, his father wants him to, to make a fortune um, as a ship's captain. Well, then come home, be a member of the government. Hopefully, that's his idea. But Dr. Yates, it's it's fascinating how Newton writes about how much his mother shaped him. Even though it was a very short period of time, and he he says that it's all of those things that she taught him, even as a young 
boy that would later come to prick his conscience and that God would use to uh, continue to, to call him to himself. That, that type of experience, even as a young boy, culturally wasn't necessarily that uh, uncommon in, in many households. The, the, the going to church, being influenced by a mother who loved the Lord and introduced their children to scripture, uh, such an, an amazing grace in and of itself for him and for his life to be able to experience. Um, this idea of, that Dr. McMullen is, has uh, talked about of young men being just press gang. You, you could be out and about and uh, as many of the young men are here and you would just be taken uh, by a group of either sailors or soldiers and then put immediately on a ship and not get to say anything. Uh, that was just the way that the life happened. Uh, later in his, uh, in his Newton's writing on the slave trade itself, he uses the press ganging of young men uh, from Britain as one of the cases why slavery is bad for Britain is that you're, you're destroying our young men by taking countless hundreds of men from the streets of Britain and taking them into a life that they could have done so much more or something different from that. And so when he's a teenager on the seas, he's experiencing hardship. Uh, he's experiencing debauchery. Give us a sense as to, to that side of things. He wants to go. Dr. Kidd. Well, one thing that's, that's really unusual about his experience is that at, at one point he's effectively enslaved himself uh, in Africa. Um, it's a long story, but it, 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 you can't make this stuff up about, about, you know, when he talks about becoming a wretch, I mean, I think he's talking about the debauchery that he gets into as a sailor and so forth, but just the utter wretchedness of, of his life, um, some through his own fault, through, some through circumstances he didn't control. Um, but when he comes around, and it takes him a surprisingly long time, but when he comes around to anti-slavery principles, uh, he, he not only faces the guilt of his own complicity in the, in the slave trade, but that horrible experience, debauched, miserable experience that, that most of us can't even imagine of having effectively lived as a slave himself. Also, he was, it was said of him that he was actually, of fellow debaucherous men, he was king. And, he, and, and when you think about even the word debauchery and how it, how it ekes out of the mouth, um, he was known for even pushing the lines there. And something interesting on note about that is that where he would come to, to pen hymns of the faith and hymns of doctrine, he was also known to write debaucherous songs right. on the sea. So he was already a songwriter of sorts. So we see later on then coming full circle that a heart touched by grace, he was using the same gifts, but he was using those gifts in debaucherous ways. And, and, and often his fellow sinful comrades uh, would, would, would think that he pushed the limits and they would try to keep away from him, even in the songs he would sing. You know, at the age of 11, when his, or at the age of seven, not long after his uh, mother died, his father m remarried very quickly. 
And I think that that also played a part in his rebelliousness um, as, in terms of just seeking. Um, and we don't want to underestimate the value of what moms can do in the life of their, um, of their children. So moms out there, lest you think that what you're doing is uh, not being seen or heard or won't have an impact later, keep pressing in and teaching the scriptures to your young children. But yes, John Newton was, was so rebellious. Here was a man who could have potentially had a, um, a very prestigious career, and he literally ruined every opportunity, uh, either in uh, rebelliousness on ship. He was flogged at one point and, and sent below uh, the, the, the deck and imprisoned. Uh, he would try anything and everything he could to get out of a certain uh, circumstance, offering himself to be traded to other ships. Um, uh, literally in every instance, he, and I think always in the background of his mind was the, the teaching that his, that he received as a, as a little boy. Um, but there was a searching also, and he sought in, um, modern philosophy. Uh, he sought, he dabbled in the occult. Uh, he tried every which way um, to make sense of his life and could never be reconciled until he came to faith in Christ. Right, and the theme is a young man that, that, that even amongst darkness, he was quite dark. Uh, you know, Churchill famously commented when, when a colleague referred to the glorious history of the Royal Navy, ha, what glorious history? You mean rom, sodomy, and the lash? And, and it's amongst those individuals that, that, that Newton is even like a bit too much for them. The vocabulary, the invention of words and, and crude expressions in songs, the lewdness, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then even the, the sexual waywardness and so forth. And so, so then now he's becoming a man. He, he's in a, a dark season of life, spiritually dark. He, he, he's showing all the signs of depravity. He's entering manhood, and he gets involved with the slave trade. Let's unpack that for a few minutes. Dr. McMullen, why don't you begin and give us just a sense of the slave trade in this moment of mid-18th century British Britain. It's, it's the foundation of Britain's economy. It's um, a vested interest for the rich and the powerful in England. Uh, any attempt to undermine that would be seen as, tr as basically committing treason in England. And, and Newton, I mean, even after his conversion um, for several years, he'll still trade in slaves because it, it's not yet seen as, as the very immoral thing that people will have to be convinced it is. So even though it's maybe seen as somewhat distasteful and Newton hopes that as a Christian still working as a slave trader, that he can pray for the slaves on the ship, uh, they can be treated better maybe than on some ships, but there's no awful sense of doing something that is absolutely immoral and must be stopped. And, and even once he writes his book about his experiences, still people will be appalled at the conditions that sailors will work in, but there's, again, there's no being appalled at the actual trading slaves. And, and we're talking of 11 million that will be traded, maybe in total. Dr. Yates. It's, when we talk about uh, what became known as the Middle Passage, right, the, the, the movement of men and women from the coast of Africa to the Caribbean or to the shores of America itself, the 
the sheer numbers of individuals stolen. He participated not only in the transatlantic trade, but he also participated in running smaller boats up and down the coastline and taking men and women from uh, their their villages and others and, and, and bringing them to larger ships that then would would move across. So he's, he's involved uh, on both sides of this. Um, when we think of those ships, there's... Uh, the, the decks of a ship and having individuals laying literally side by side, uh, shackled to one another, unable to do anything or to go anywhere and um, only being able to see, you know, go upstairs uh, above the deck of the ship um, for brief amounts of time only to be returned. And this passage, uh, again, we, we think, good night, we can, we can fly somewhere and I can be there in eight to 10 hours. Uh, this trip normally took four months, uh, and Newton even writes, at times it, it was eight to nine months because of wind changes or current issues or issues on the boat, and these are individuals who are there. Furthermore, they're losing, they're estimating in their business principles, losing a quarter of the people on board simply out of sickness or other kinds of things, but they're, they've put such a value, on they, they've even done these, it, it's frustrating to read from our, our vantage point how they, they just put numeric value on this instead of human value. And it, it becomes very hard, I think, for us to read about the atro- atrocious nature of that middle passage and what that meant, and then not to say what would happen as, as well once they re- reach the shores. Right, and we tend to think of you know, the horrors of, of enslaved enslaved labor, but, but also, which is not spoken of as much, is you know, the sexual exploitation that took place amongst especially the, the ladies and young girls on the boats and, and beyond. I mean, it's a, it's a horrific, I mean, it's a horrific enterprise at every level. And Newton would eventually come to see that. Uh, Dr. Kidd, any comment on, on that season of, of just, again, life in, in mid-18th century uh, Britain? Yeah, I mean, I would just echo the the scale of the of the slave trade, and um, oh, another way to think about it is we think that probably between about fifteen hundred and eighteen hundred, uh, those years that three quarters of the people who moved from east to west across the Atlantic were from Africa, not from Europe. So, I mean, this is the vast majority of people coming to the quote new world is people coming in chains. So, like, this is the main event, right? That's, that's what I want to emphasize. It's, it's like, this isn't like a side issue. This is, this is the main event. And, you know, people like Newton were just deeply, you know, complicit in this. So, um, it, it's, it's hard to overstate the magnitude of, uh, of this. Now, evangelicals um, are, uh, by the time you get to, say, the 1770s, you, you start to see the emergence of a, an evangelical critique of the institution of slavery. And that there's a lot of debate about why it takes that long. There have been some Quakers uh, in the decades before that who had said that this is immoral, uh, to do this, but it takes uh, evangelicals a little longer to sort of, you know, get the memo on this. Um, but but when you get to that point, I will say on a, on a more positive note that it does often tend to be uh, white and black evangelicals who are the, the pioneers culturally on the critique of, of the institution of slavery. And in Newton circles, uh, John Wesley is one of the first. Yeah. 
uh, to come out publicly against it in the 1770s. And, and then, you know, you think about Jonathan Edwards Sr. was a slave owner, criticized the slave trade, but not slavery itself. Jonathan Edwards Jr. was an anti-slavery activist. So, you know, something is happening in evangelical culture, you know, in the decades sort of after Newton's conversion. So let's talk about Newton's conversion. He has a Jonah-like experience. Dr. Swain, tell us what happened. So he had been enslaved on the western coast of Africa. And again, not just enslaved, but he was actually viewed as lower than the slaves. He was so destitute that, um, that slaves would come and feed him. Um, and he was in shackles himself. He, um, he ends himself out of that position working for another employer. And lo and behold, a ship providentially comes off the coast of Africa. His father has been looking for him. And it just so happens that um, a conversation is had. The captain says, by the way, do you know of a man by the name of Newton on the, um, that might be around this part? And lo and behold, there, Newton was there. And so he was able to come home um, under the promise that there was a large sum of money for him, which turned out to be false. Um, but he also was, uh, his heart was, uh, was really uh, enraptured with a young lady by the name of Mary Catlett whom he had met many years earlier. And so uh, under the hopes that he would get to go home, he uh, finds himself on this ship uh, going back to England. And it is on that voyage home that there is a terrible storm. He had been, uh, he found a copy of Thomas Kempis's The Imitation of Christ. He's been pondering his life and uh, what is the meaning of his life and asking eternal questions and uh, considering salvation and this terrible storm comes and literally in the moments before he is called to go up on the top deck of the ship, the man who is in front of him is horrifically and very suddenly swept off the ship. And uh, of course, in those moments, we're all faced with the reality of our lives. And I think for, for Newton, this was certainly the case. Um, and it is there that he calls out, cries out uh, to the Lord. And, uh, and so he commits his life, uh, realizing that he has been a wretch. His life has been a wretch. Um, and that he was a horrible sinner, the worst of, uh, but experienced God's amazing saving grace in that moment. Also, I think it's important that this kind of wraps back around full circle from the beginning of the conversation. It's said of some historians, uh, perhaps from his own testimony at various times, that in addition to the readings of the imitation of Christ that he'd been dabbling with, all these pre-conversion ongoings from no doubt from the Holy Spirit, that part of that was the, the role that hymnody played in his own life. And the irony can't be lost on us about that. Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts, the hymns of Isaac Watts, those hymns that he had been taught from childhood. Isn't there something beautiful about God's very good gift of language, especially when it's uh, uttered in meter and and in poetry and all the ways that we can uh, beautifully capture language. And then when it's wedded to uh, beautiful melody, 
there's something powerful that happens, whether on one scale, how we remember the alphabet song or we remember the times tables and those things that can be set forever uh, against a tune. But, but, but we can't lose here the power of hymnody and the power of right doctrine set upon the wings of melody. And we ought to be thinking about these things. These are very important Sunday, Sunday morning matters. And no doubt that his hymns from childhood, he, he attested, would come to mind and on those tunes would be the wings of truth about who God was and who he was in light of that. And so in addition to readings and conviction, there were hymns on his heart up to the age of six that mama had taught him and that, worship that mama. the worship mama, <laughs> uh, uh, that, that he had been taught. So absolutely, we, we, we take courage, and the irony shouldn't be lost that then he became a hymn writer. Even his uh, music making was redeemed, and then it continues to help be a part of that transformation in the lives of others. Yeah, and so th- there is an analogy to Jonah, the storm on the sea, bringing him close to his own mortality. There's also an analogy to Paul of uh, being the chief of sinners, being converted. And again, we should pause right here and say, praise God for the gospel of Christ. I mean, Newton's story, it, it, is, it is remarkably deplorable pre-Christ. And uh, again, whether, it, when every, whether it's the vocabulary, the, the evidently the, the, the sexual expeditions, obviously the slave trade and all that went with it. I mean, this is an individual that is in a very distant place from the grace of God. But God shows up as I read. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he doesn't just kind of get like a, a makeover. I mean, there's a comprehensive change. And just like his conversion isn't documented as a day or an hour, but, but kind of a, a season of awakening, there is a season of awakening to the slave trade. It's, it's not boom, boom. There's, there's time of, of wrestling with this and processing it. So give us a sense panel as to his life shortly after conversion as far as the awakening to ministry and then, and then the awakening to the evils of the slave, slave trade. I mean, initially, he, uh, he's kind of on a spiritual high. It's back on a boat, and he writes, he's like, I went right back. In fact, maybe even worse than I was before, before falling under conviction. So uh, even when we think ministerially of, uh, of loving people who've come to Christ, that sometimes we see those things, but he falls back under conviction uh, of, uh, of the Holy Spirit and rededicates and kind of moves from there. Yeah, I mean, he will, even though he will celebrate that day, March 21st, um, every year afterwards as a day of prayer and humiliation, um, he also admits that uh, if he was converted that day, he had so much further to go that um, he realized that it, it was just like the morning light had dawned, but not where he really needed to be as a Christian. And, and so he's gonna trade for another seven years or so before he leaves. Now, and, and again, you know, we've talked about a lot of the things in his life, but he leaves being a captain and he's only 29. So, so much has happened as a young man that we often think of John Newton and these other men as like, you know, in their 50s or 60s or right. something. We have that image. but. He's converted at 22. He leaves at 29. Um, So his life is there for God to be able to use um, and do great things. That's what is amazing to me. I think something else that we need to remember here is that he was not discipled. He came to faith, but then, as you say, he uh, finds himself back on the seas and is really having to try to figure out his faith on his own. 
and uh, which I think plays a really powerful part of his own. Once he surrenders to pastoral ministry, I think that this, in, this lack of discipleship formed and shaped the way he then wanted to pastor because he knew the value of having a mature believer come alongside an immature believer uh, to, to help teach the scriptures to him. He, he, had to, he had to fend for himself, essentially. And when he eventually gets to Olney, of course, this becomes a hallmark part of how he ministers to the men and women in his own town. Right, and so just you know, to the broad contours of his ministry as well. He, he pastors the same church for forty three years. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's not really known as like a great preacher. Uh, he just is known as faithful. Uh, he, he's a a prolific letter writer in number and in eloquence, evidently. And then, of course, the hymns he's producing. And so, but he also has some very strategic friendships and ministry relationships. And to look at the list of individuals he trafficked with it is, is remarkable. I mean, we, you know, William Cooper, William Carey, uh, Judson, Whitfield, and Wesley. I mean, he is trafficking with some leaders. And of course, William Wilberforce himself, who he affiliates with and uh, is influenced by and influences. So give us a sense, panel, as to some of these different relationships, how they impacted one another, and, uh, and how that helped to, to make Newton the man. Dr. McMillan. Well, even, um, you know, he's called to the ministry and uh, he's given opportunities to speak in local churches, um, but uh, he's not accepted to be ordained. And it's going to take him six, seven years for that to happen. Um, and so, again, maybe just because you know, we feel God has a certain plan for us doesn't mean that it's going to happen overnight. Um, And the door is open through one of these relationships. He's a good friend uh, with a man called Lord Dartmouth, and Lord Dartmouth is able to have him quickly ordained by a bishop, Lincoln, and then is given a church in Olney. He'll be in Olney for 16 years. And, And it's there that especially he's going to start some of these incredible relationships. You know, just one, Wilberforce is going to go there as a young boy, 9 to 11 years old. He's going to visit Newton, and that's going to be the start of that incredible relationship. Dr. Yates, kid? It's a lot of his ministry uh, in London as well has, it, it's the, the church positions him well to be with individuals of um, means within culture and society, movers and shakers. And because of his letter writing, because of his um, components where he tries to invest in others and to uh, even learn from others, he has this remarkable um, interconnected relationship with so many people, as you've already indicated. It's just it's almost unfathomable how, how well connected he is. Yet he's not using that for his own promotion. He's not using that for his own social advancement. He's using that purely for ministry. Actually, he, he reluctantly wrote his conversion story in an autobiographical way. And I think that this is also what helped gain him some notoriety. Um, when he was, in fact, with his ordination, I think it was Wesley who said, this is a very unusual way because he had applied to 
to the Church of England to be ordained, and he did not meet the, the, the educational qualifications, and so he was rejected, but was able to kind of come in through, uh, providentially through the, through the back door because of people he knew, because he had written this testimony and had gained notoriety. Uh, in Olney, he becomes very, very, very good friends with a literary of the day by the name of William Cooper. William Cooper was everything that John Newton was not. He was quiet, introspective. He, um, he had struggles with uh, mental health and depression um, terribly uh, throughout his entire life. And here is Newton, this winsome, kind of boisterous, uh, fun-loving kind of guy, so to speak. You know, in, in, in walks Cooper, who is the, his exact opposite, but they form a, a friendship um, and a mentorship and a, a bond that is really unique. And I think that um, as uh, Cooper, who was not known as a, one of England's leading literary figures when Newton meets him, Cooper later becomes a figure that is recognized as one of um, England's leading figures into romantic poetry and uh, romantic writing. And... Uh, but I think it is this, this forged friendship, and there is not a day that went by that these two men did not spend together. They walked together. Uh, when, when Cooper was in seasons of severe depression, William, uh, or John Newton made an, a sp- very specific and very sacrificial uh, investment in the life of Cooper, um, even at one point inviting him to live in his home. And he writes, he says, this is not an easy prospect for me uh, to have this person who is struggling so severely, but he recognized that uh, the, the, the power of discipleship and friendship, and he would use ministry as a means to help pull Cooper out of these seasons of, uh, uh, of depression. Dr. Kidd? Yeah, I just I wanted to echo about the relationship with Cooper has just you know, the hand of providence all over it. I mean, that, that you put a character like Newton in partnership with Cooper, uh, who now I think is widely regarded as one of the most important writers of the, of the late 1700s in England of, you know, any genre. Um, and, you know, is, is someone who suffers with terrible problems with mental illness. Um, and, and Newton was just the right person to partner with him to bring out his talents and you know, to the glory of God. I mean, I, that, you know, of all the amazing things about Newton's life, I, I think that partnership, it strikes me as one of the most amazing. Yeah, and wasn't Cooper present when the church gathered and sang Amazing Grace for the first time? On the, yes, on, so this is really just quite amazing. Uh, that on the day of January 1st of 1773, William Cooper is present in the corporate gathering where Amazing Grace is sung. It is that afternoon that Cooper leaves and is walking through a field and has this horrible premonition that he's ready, he's getting ready to, to slide into a, a season of severe depression. And within that 24-hour period, he, he slid into this season of depression that that sadly he never was able to shake from his life. He believed that he had committed, uh, you know, that he had profaned the Holy Spirit and that his life was, there was no hope for his life. The irony of singing of God's amazing saving grace that morning um, 
as, uh, as his lifelong friendship and companion would never be the same. Dr. There is one thing we could add. Uh, today in Olney, you can visit Cooper's house, and uh, that's part of the museum dedicated to both Newton and Cooper. And uh, the great thing why I love Cooper as well is that he cut holes in the wall of his house. Uh, he kept wild hares inside, and they would jump through the holes from one room to another, and I think that was uh, a great thing about an eccentric kind of English person. Yeah, that's redefining an eccentric kind of English person. Cooper's hymn, you know, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Am I misremembering, or did he, did he begin to write that like the same day Amazing Grace was sung? I, I can't answer that, but I, that is one of his most uh, profound lyrics. And if you read the, the poetry of, of, uh, of Cooper, you definitely see a refinement in his language that... When in comparison with Newton, his his poetry is much more rough-hewn, more simple. Um, but but suffice it to say that this kind of idea of writing hymns for the church in in community is, I think, one that we ought to be be thinking about. And by the way, it was Cooper and and Newton who committed together to, to put only hymns, this collection of hymns, together for the express purpose of their church, um, for the gathered body. Um, and Cooper says, uh, or Newton says, I, he says, hymns ought to be plain. They are for simple people. They, they should not be written for, they're not odes. So watch even how, um, as uh, for hymn writers, watch how flowery your language gets. Um, he had very, very specific things to say about the power of the pen um, as it relates to hymn singing for the church. In fact, he said, I, I try to model my hymns after the hymns of Isaac Watts, but he said, I recognize that I am nowhere near his, his talent or his caliber, but he said, even Watts, had to uh, had to quench his fire at the pen in order to be restrained to write poems that would be serve as an encouragement uh, and uh, to impart truth to uh, believers. And so, moving the conversation along here to uh, to the hymn itself, and we talked about it at the beginning of this. We've touched on it throughout. But the other striking thing about Amazing Grace is it really does span the totality of the Christian life, you know, from pre-conversion till when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We'll have no last days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And, and you know, Newton is writing that. And how, how self-consciously is he writing autobiographically? He writes, he writes autobiographically. And if you read the preface... To his to only hymns, he says these hymns that I write. Uh, obviously, he's writing in conjunction with a with a text that he's going to preach, which was First Chronicles. Um, and so, you can certainly read that passage of scripture and then follow the narrative. Uh, there are six stanzas. And by the way, when we've been there ten thousand years was not his original. Right, right. Uh, it has become embedded in part of the hymn as we know it now. Uh, but you can certainly read the narrative of the scripture and you can see how it lines up. But he says, I cannot help but write out of my own personal experience. So certainly, you know, these, uh, the practicality of living out the Christian faith um, is what I think g- 
gives him our hymns such uh, significance is that it puts flesh uh, on uh, the living, the daily living of believers. It, it helps gives give flesh to that. Ms. Wayne. I think it's interesting to note, and I think it's worth noting, especially for the sake of our students, and in particular those who are studying for the pastorate, you don't have to be a, pro- a prolific poet. But we do see up until the last century this, this um, relationship between those preparing sermons, uh, the, the theology of it that then exudes doxology, uh, that, that most often they were one and the same. There was a synonymity there between those who preached and those who wrote hymns. And I think too often today, not to get too futuristic in the conversation, but we leave it to the music guys to deal with the music and the preachers preach. But as we can hear testimony here, it's, it's mostly been one and the same, that one can't help when they're in the Word to exude the Word in the form of preaching or the songs that preach, otherwise known as hymns, these doctrinal truths set to tunes. And we, we love the fact that people like Matt Boswell, who are preachers today as a pastor of a church, is writing songs for the church. Um, Spurgeon writing songs for the church as he preached for the church. Watts, the Wesleys. This is common, uh, unbeknownst to many of us young students, this is common. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to make a touch point here to say, first of all, you can study these things. These are the conversations we're having in the Department of Worship Ministries because it's about Sunday mornings. Take a class about these things. Come join the conversations. But it, but But challenge yourself. Maybe we have future hymn writers here that can also express, help their people on Sunday mornings express these thoughts, not just an appetizer to your sermon, but and not just to think of your people as common and you have to write something they can understand. There's certainly a truth to that for things to be understood. But I think it should be a challenge to the next generation of those of you sitting out there that this is a common thing, and it should inspire us all to aspire to that, perhaps, uh, to be hymn writers. We need new hymn writers, and they, they are one and the same. Theology should lead us to doxology, and that's certainly what happened in the life of Newton. Thank you. Dr. Kidd, did you want to add a word there? Well, I, I just wanted to echo the, the way that his life is reflected in the hymn, uh, you, know, you know, obviously with the lead-in of Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. He knew exactly what that was about, but, but you know, the last stanza, it, you know, goes from the most transcendent to the most personal, about the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, from the most transcendent to the most personal, and I think that's part of the reason why it's so resonant. Thank you. And, and, it, showed, and it shows the the progression of the gospel as it works in our life, in the in our past, in our present, and in in the future. All of grace. All of it. All of it. Well, friends, it's been delightful to have the conversation. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Our panelists will make their way to their seats, and Dr. Mrs. Wayne is going to lead us just in a closing hymn of Amazing Grace, and then with that, we'll be dismissed. Join me in praying. Father, we thank you this morning for the story of John Newton. Even the conversation the past 45 minutes uh, has reminded us of how rich indeed the grace of God is. And Father, we identify with this story because we identify with this man, John Newton. We all were wretches before Christ. But through Christ and because of Christ, we stand before you forgiven, whole, and clean. And we thank you for that. We pray now as we sing this great hymn, 
that the hymn indeed would be our anthem this day and every day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.